You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. I'm Janet Bush. I'm a senior editor with the McKinsey Global Institute. Today, we're going to talk about the findings of a new report from MGI on financial globalization. In other words, cross-border movements of foreign direct investment, equities, debt securities and lending. And with me today is Susan Lund, a partner with MGI in Washington, D.C., and Eckhart Windhagen, who's a McKinsey senior partner and also a member of the MGI Council, and he's based in Frankfurt. So welcome to you both. Hi, Janet. Hi. So, Susan, can I start with you? This is actually the latest in a series of MGI reports on financial globalization. So what's the current state of play? What we see is that in the 10 years since the global financial crisis began, cross-border capital flows have fallen by 65%, from over $12 trillion to just over $4 trillion in 2016. Half of that decline is coming from a decline in cross-border lending and other types of banking activity. When we look at what's happening with the global banks, we see that they are reducing their foreign exposure, they're selling foreign businesses, they're allowing loans to expire without renewing them, and they're selling different types of foreign assets. So overall, there's been a broad-based retreat towards more domestic activity. And the main drivers of this retrenchment have been, on one hand, the need to rebuild capital and recoup losses after the crisis, but also the need to meet international and new regulatory requirements at the local level. But we also see that banks are just proceeding more thoughtfully as they consider their foreign business. And they're deciding to exit or reduce operations in markets where they lack scale or unique capabilities. And this is an ongoing process. Eckhart, one of the features of this report is the central role that the Eurozone has played in the retrenchment in flows. So what's the story there? After the creation of the single currency Uh, Eurozone banks began expanding into other markets, in particular into European markets. With currency as well as country risk assumed to be zero, geography of assets and liabilities didn't matter anymore. So the stock of banks, foreign loans and other claims almost quintupled from 2000 to uh, almost 16 trillion in 2007. And now Uh, Eurozone banks are at the epicenter of a retreat from foreign operations. So their foreign total foreign loans and other claims are uh, down by 7.3 trillion, that is 45% since 2007. And nearly half of that was uh, intra-European borrowing, especially interbank lending. In many ways, uh, this is actually a rational response to massive, or one could even say excessive, expansion that was rather prevalent before the crisis, risky lending and intrabank lending being the most prominent part of that business. At the same time, many Eurozone banks are growing their domestic business. If we take the example of Germany, the largest banks in Germany decreased their foreign assets by more than half since 2007, but at the same time, they increased their domestic business by 70%. And retrenchment from foreign markets, it's not just a phenomenon of the Eurozone, of course. Swiss and UK banks, for example, reduced their foreign loans and other claims by a combined 2.1 trillion, that is 32%. And also US banks have also exited markets. 
while you do see a major retrenchment of European and U.S. banks, there are banks from other countries that are expanding abroad in different ways. For instance, Canadian banks are highly international, uh, and they have increased their international businesses over the last 10 years. Right now, roughly half of the balance sheets of the large Canadian banks are now overseas, and that's particularly seen in the U.S. We also see some of the largest Japanese banks expanding abroad in different ways. Uh, partly, they're active in the wholesale lending markets and syndicated lending in the U.S., but they're also expanding in retail banking across Southeast Asia. And probably the biggest change in the global landscape has been the uh, increased activities of Chinese banks outside of China. So we've seen that their foreign loans have went from very low, almost negligible levels 10 years ago to over a trillion dollars at the end of 2016. This reflects, in part, their following Chinese corporations as they invest abroad in Africa, Latin America, the U.S. and Europe, and often the financing for the foreign direct investment by Chinese companies is supplied by Chinese banks. So this is a major change, and we think, if anything, Chinese banks could continue to expand their foreign lending quite substantially. Today, despite this tremendous growth, they still have only 9% of their total assets are in foreign assets outside of China. When you look at banks in all the other advanced economies, at least 20%, and in many cases a much larger share than that, is in foreign assets. So if Chinese banks are to follow the examples of other banks in advanced economies, we could see their foreign assets double or even triple again in the years ahead. Eckhart, does the fact that so many large banks are retrenching mean, well, effectively the end of financial globalization? Absolutely not. Financial globalization is surprisingly robust. Financial markets remain deeply interconnected, however, with a different profile. The global value of foreign investment as a percentage of GDP has actually been steady since 2007 at around 180%. It now stands as an absolute figure at more than 130 trillion. And globally, 27% of equity are held by foreign investors. That's up from 17% in 2000. And 31% of bonds are foreign-owned. It's up from 18% in 2000. Only lending has declined as a share of GDP. And we also see reasons to believe that the system is likely to be more stable than it was before the crisis. There's less debt, which is intrinsically volatile in cross-border capital flows than before. And there's more foreign direct investment in equities, which are less volatile. Today, FDI and equities account for two-thirds of cross-border capital flows, compared with just one-third before 2007. Another development that should make the system more stable overall is the fact that financial and capital account imbalances have dropped from 2.6% of GDP in 2007 to 1% of GDP in 2016. And the US-China share is actually down by half. Thanks, Eckhart. So, Susan, the report talks about new dynamics in financial globalization. Potentially more stability is one of them. Are there others? 
Yes, there are some other changes. First of all, we see that financial globalization is getting more inclusive, by which we mean that more countries are participating in global finance. We develop a new MGI financial connectedness ranking in this report, in which we list countries by the size of their total foreign investment assets and liabilities. And what we see is that, first of all, financial globalization is heavily concentrated. So advanced economies account for 85% of all foreign assets and liabilities. The top five advanced economies account for half of assets, and the top 10 has 70%. So this is still very much dominated by the largest countries in global finance, like the United States, UK, Germany, and so on. But uh, against this backdrop, we also see that the share of foreign assets and liabilities of developing economies is rising. So 10 years ago, their share was only 8 to 9%, and now it's closer to 14 to 15%. So it's steady growth. As we mentioned earlier, China is a big part of this story. In our ranking, it rose from the 16th uh, in 2005 to 8th in 2016. China has undergone a notable shift as well in 2016. For the last decade or more, central bank foreign reserve asset purchases were the main capital outflow from China. But in 2016, we saw that other types of private capital outflows, so foreign direct investment by companies, foreign bank lending, and purchases of portfolio equity and debt, actually surpassed the value of China's foreign reserve assets for the first time. And we think that trend will continue. The second big change we see in financial globalization is the role of international financial centers. We found that there are 10 heavyweight international financial centers in our ranking. And I should note, there are many more countries that simply don't report data, many of the small island economies that are offshore financial centers. But of the ones that do report the data, we see that between them, they account for about a quarter of global foreign investments, and that one-third of the growth in global foreign investment over the last 10 years has gone through financial centers. So they're actually playing a larger role than they were before. And among these, to give some examples, would be countries like Luxembourg, but also Netherlands, Ireland, Singapore, Hong Kong, and a few others. Interesting. So Eckhart, can we assume that the instability of the past has permanently been squeezed out of the system? We clearly see the signs of more stability, but of course there are still significant risks and there is no room for complacency. Gross capital flows, particularly cross-border lending, remain volatile. In the past five years, if you look at it, more than 60% of developing countries and over 70% of advanced economies have either had a large decline or a surge or reversal or recovery in cross-border lending each year. And the median size of these shifts is significant. 3% of GDP in developing and 7.7% of GDP in advanced economies. Among other risks, equity valuations have risen to new highs. Financial contagion remains a risk, despite the efforts of more rigorous regulation and the rise of sometimes opaque international financial centers still bears watching. And there is new technology. It is too early to tell how new technology will play out, but it's a new and significant dynamic factor. 
enables faster, lower-cost, more efficient cross-border transactions. For instance, digital platforms, blockchain, machine learning, AI, all of those changing the dynamic and with very little deeper understanding how this will unfold over time. What do banks need to do to adjust to this new era of global finance? Global banks will need to shift their international strategies to focus on core markets and corporate clients. They need to transform risk management with advanced analytics and they need to harness new technologies. Those players that won't respond to those challenges, they will be left behind. Regulators will need to continue refining bank regulation and systemic risk monitoring. They need to develop new tools to manage volatile capital flows, for instance, insurance funds, contingent debt contracts, and they need to enable fintechs to thrive but monitor new risks associated with advanced technology. Our new global banking report, which we will publish soon, notes a significant change of underlying drivers for economic performance of banks. For the past decade, the question where you played, the geography in which you had your dominant footprint, was always by far the most relevant aspect. Two-thirds of all factors actually accounted for geography. This is now down to one-third, while the performance of management teams has significantly grown in relevance. Looking at this whole report, what did you find most surprising? So clearly the robustness of financial globalization with a more healthy profile. Despite the almost crash of cross-border flow in the aftermath of the crisis, the global allocation of capital continued to evolve positively. And a significant part of the cross-border flows at the peak was clearly decoupled from underlying real economy activities and also stabilization mechanisms and efforts, for example, by central banks, did work. Well, I agree with Eckert that it was surprising to see how robust financial globalization has remained and the new ways that point to the fact that it may be more stable and resilient going forward. And that's all very good news that should be celebrated. But at the same time, I was struck by the changes in the banking industry, and particularly the largest banks. Globalization broadly has come under attack in many countries by both politicians and workers who have been displaced by trade. And, but when you look at industries and companies, you can't find very many that are actually less globalized than they were before. And over the last 10 years, if anything, the world economy has continued to become more and more integrated. But that's not true for the world's largest banks, from the U.S. and Europe at least. There you can find very large changes within individual banks that has made them far less global and more focused on domestic markets. So that's a pretty striking example that, in fact, globalization is not inevitable and banking is one area where we can actually see a pretty dramatic reversal in how global they are versus how much they focus on domestic markets. Well, thanks, Susan. Thanks, Eckhart, very much. That was extremely interesting. For anybody who wants to read the report in full, do go to www.mckinsey.com forward slash MGI. Thank you. Thank you, Janet. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.